What is up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just and the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk from long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. Getting ready to talk some NBA this week. The NBA is coming back about a month. We're going to take a break from the baseball coverage. Baseball we're going to get back into next week. We're going to start covering the Yankees and Mets getting ready for opening day. Hopefully, all things go well here. That The virus doesn't derail everything. We're going to talk about the Brooklyn Nets thing. We'll be joined by the Athletics Nets reporter, Alex Schiffer. We're going to talk about Brooklyn, where their season was, how they're going to look heading into the playoffs, his thoughts on Durant, Kyrie Irving, all that good stuff in just a bit. We're also going to show me the money for the first time since... March, when we did the fake March Madness bracket with Kevin Walsh Jr., and he's actually be back today with Martina Puccio, both from Sports Grid, where we talk about some of the big pictures of the NBA, how it might affect some of the betting you might be wanting to do as the season resumes. Will the neutral site affect the odds? How might certain sit-outs affect all this? We're going to talk to Martino and Kevin about that in just a bit. Make sure you stay tuned to the end of the podcast with the pop culture hit this week. Alan Austin is back with me. We're going to talk about Netflix's High Flying Bird. It's a basketball movie. Without much basketball. Very interesting experiment. Alan and I are going to discuss that at the end of the show. But we'll start with the opening tip. I have to get some stuff off my chest about the Jamal Adams situation right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, we are back here. Opening tip for this week. We are talking about the Jets-Jamal Adams situation. And boy, this has become a fiasco. Mostly Jamal Adams is doing. Remember, this whole kerfuffle started back last year at the NFL trading deadline during the regular season. Uh, The Jets listened to offers for Jamal Adams. Jamal got upset and basically said, I want out. They smoothed their relationship over. At the end of the year, Joe Douglas, the GM, says, I want to make Jamal a Jet for life. All this good stuff. But... Jamal has not gotten a contract offer from the Jets. He has pouted about it on social media. He has now demanded a trade. Now, Jamal Adams is a list right now. He's gave the Jets eight teams that he's willing to be traded for, traded to. The Eagles, the Cowboys, the Texans, the 49ers, the Ravens, Chiefs, Seahawks, and the Buccaneers. And in other words, you might as well add the 2007 Patriots, 85 Bears, 2000 Ravens. Basically, the message here, Jamal wants to play for a winner. Jamal wants no part of being on the Jets. And he basically has hinted that he will play for any of those teams. Not the legendary teams, obviously. That's, I'm just joking, guys. He'll play for any of those current teams without a contract extension. And as a Jet fan, that annoys the hell out of me. And I'm getting sick of Jamal Williams' shtick right now because Jamal, when he came in the league, was, I'm a winner. I'm going to help the Jets win. I'm recruiting players to the Jets. He spent time recruiting Le'Veon Bell. Now he's saying... Get me out of here. I want to be for a winner. I'm going to play for West for the winner. But if I'm the Jets and I'm here, give me my money. That does not fly for me because you walk out trying to build a winning culture here. I want mine. It's not part of winning culture here. And 
the problem for Jamal is the Jets hold all the leverage. And Jamal's still a very good player. If the Jets trade Jamal Adams, it will be for an overpay. And I'll give you an example here. Jamal Adams last week basically went to, was caught on social media talking to a Cowboy fan, basically saying, hey, I'm trying to get traded to the Cowboys. Let's go. If the Cowboys want to trade for Jamal Adams and they want to give me, say, a first-round pick, a third-round pick, and a player who can help the Jets right now, like Michael Gallup, because they still need receivers. You want to do that? Fine. You can have Jamal Adams. But if nobody's going to overpay him, they're not trading him anywhere. He has zero leverage. Zero. He's under contract for two more years. The Jets can tag him if they want to after the third year. So he cannot really hit free agency until three years from now. If I'm Joe Douglas and I am seeing a situation, I say, you know what, Jamal? Go ahead. Hold out. Hold on to the season because I will pay you down the line. I can't do it right now. The Jets with Jamal Adams are 16 and 32. As great as a player as he is, and he is one of the best safeties in football, no one's denying that. They can go 16 and 32 without him. All of these teams that he wants to trade for, trade get traded to, and his status about how, oh, they don't need to sign me an extension, it's all smoke because they can't pay him. You're telling me the Cowboys are going to not pay Dak Prescott because they're going to pay Jamal Adams a big contract? He knows this. This is just about him trying to make a point. And you know which team is most likely to pay Jamal Adams going forward? The New York Jets, as soon as next year. The problem with the Jets is they are not in great cap shape right now. The Mike McCagney era left them a ton of bad contracts. We just saw them eat $12 million to send Tremaine Johnson on his merry way. And they have a bunch of bad deals on their books. Their cap situation is going to be a lot better after this year when they're going to move on from Le'Veon Bell with very little penalty. CJ Mosley they're kind of stuck with, but they have a lot of the bad monies off the books after this year. At that point, I expect them to go back the truck up to Jamal and say, hey, we're going to pay you right now. The reason they can't do this now, and they still have some cap room, by the way. They can make more if they cut Brian Winters and Avery Williamson, but that's not the issue here. The issue is that the cap for going forward is uncertain because of the pandemic. Right now, unlike MLB, which has basically had a fight over the money because it's not tied to revenue, football's salary cap is tied directly to revenue. So if they play this year without fans in the seats, the revenue is going to go down and the cap will not keep spiking as it has been the last few years. Until teams have more certainty with the cap, they are not going to hand out these big contracts unless they have literally infinite cap room nobody else to worry about. The Jets have time for this. Jamal is not the only big player from that grad class who's not gotten paid. Patrick Mahomes, you ever heard of him? Super Bowl MVP has not signed a contract extension yet. Deshaun Watson, same thing. And Deshaun Watson has a very big grievance with the Texans. Bill O'Brien has basically destroyed that football team. He's traded away DeAndre Hopkins. He's made that team actively worse. And Deshaun Watson could easily say, you know what? Get me out of here. Let me go to a contender. I don't want to be dealing with this nonsense. Is he whining? No, he's not. He is sitting there because he knows he's going to get paid. It's a matter of when. And the bottom line with this whole situation, unless somebody makes a stupid offer here and gives the Jets what they want and more, He's not going anywhere. Jamal will, will stay with the Jets. I'm sure they will offer him a contract once they have more certainty about the cap situation. Because right now, this the last thing this organization can afford to do is overpay Jamal Adams, have the cap not rise as much as they need to, and not have money to either 
get their needs filled, potentially extend the quarterback, because Sam Darnold's going to be coming up for an extension soon, too. Jamal is going to get paid. It will not happen as fast as he wants it. And the fact that he is openly pouting about it is very, very disappointing, especially for somebody who has modeled himself as a winner and a leader. He's not doing a very good job either right now. We'll see how the situation plays out in the coming weeks and months. But up next, we will talk some NBA, talk some Nets with Alex Schiffer of The Athletic right after this. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley hoop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Because it's basketball of Mr. Curtis All right, I am back here talking Brooklyn Nets on the podcast today with the Nets beat reporter for The Athletic, Alex Schiffer. Alex, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you for coming on. And obviously, the Nets, the only New York team heading down to Orlando to start restart the NBA season. Can you give me a little reset about how the Nets were looking right before the pause? Yeah, they were at an interesting time in their season just because they had just parted ways with Kenny Atkinson. Uh, interim coach Jock Vaughn comes in and, and gets off to a quick 2-0 start while replacing uh, starting lineup with DeAndre Jordan. They had a West Coast trip that started with a surprise win over the Lakers at Staples Center. And uh, they seem to be kind of getting into a groove of sorts with 20 games left in the regular season. Yeah, so they went four and one their last five before the shutdown happened, and obviously they look things a little different. We heard Wilson Chandler is not going down with them to Orlando. What do you think are some realistic expectations for the Nets when they go down there? You know, it's tough to say just because they were only a half game up on the Magic for the seventh seed. So, you know, even if they were to go four and four or five and three down in the bubble, you, you don't know what Orlando's going to do and what it's going to take for them to keep the seventh seed. And I think expectation really falls on what seed they are. I mean, if they're eight and they're facing Milwaukee, I, I think just win a game in the playoffs would be a, a good a good goal for them, given how loaded and deep Milwaukee is. And then, I mean, if they're the seven, you know, Toronto, or maybe it's Boston, depending upon what happens there, then it kind of changes. You know, they've, they've played the Celtics pretty well this season. Um, and Toronto has been a more difficult opponent for them, but they still have hung with them. Uh, a few times out. So I, uh, I, I think it's the, the expectation is make the playoffs and then kind of go from there for now. You know, they don't want to, it, it'd be pretty surprising if you see them in that playing game and uh, that, that they're now introducing or if they uh, were to get knocked out completely. So I think the goal right now is just make the playoffs and kind of see how things develop down there before, before anything else. Yeah, indeed, and we just saw the NBA drop their schedule last week. How do you think? How do you think it looks for the Nets over those eight games? I don't think it's. I think it's kind of like in the middle somewhere. You know, I, they have one of the more favorable routes in the East. I mean, I, I think the, the blessing is that they were supposed to play the Clippers twice, and they're only getting them once, and they they get Milwaukee once, and then you know they get the Celtics in there, who I guess they played well 
You know, they have to me the three biggest games of those eight are the two against Orlando, which could very well seal their fate for the seven or eight seed, and then Washington because obviously those three would keep them win those three, and you think the odds are pretty good that they avoid the playing tournament and get the the seventh seed. So the uh, I don't think it's it's to them, I mean, you know, you look at the Pelicans and then some of the teams that have the easiest draws. I mean, everyone wants to be in their shoes, but I don't think it's a good plan given given the way it shakes out. Yeah, I don't think they can either. And right now, this is, I think this is a big stretch for Jock Vaughn, the interim head coach. Like, do you think there's anything he can do down in Orlando to land the permanent job, or do you think that he's just basically coaching out the season? They're going to bring somebody else in. No, you know, all indications are that they are going to give him every chance he can to win the job, and and get the full-time position if possible, I, I think that it's a, it's a tough hand for him because I don't know what you can do. And, you know, what if it, it'd be a miracle if they go 8-0 in the bubble, given all the unprecedentedness of all this. And then, I mean, I, I feel like a, a first run-up to the playoffs would really put him in good contention for the job. But, I mean, how can you, you know, his, his resume with the Nets is now kind of flawed anyway based on the, the season getting suspended. And then a restart, and, you know, Wilson Chandler's not a, a gigantic blow to them, but a noticeable one. I, I just think his candidacy is so tough to evaluate in general, and, and then you're kind of putting him in this situation. So I, I think you can use that all for as an excuse why he, he shouldn't get it, because, you know, you can't really get a, can't hire a guy where you have such a cloudy read on. But I, I also think that he has some things going for me. You know, he, he's from the first tree that Sean Marks draws so much from. Um, by the players, former net. You know, he, he's got some stuff going for him, but I, I think that the most obvious way from the really emerge as a serious candidate is a first-round upset. But it's tough to gauge even how, how realistic that is right now. Yeah, a lot of uncertainty there until we see what the actual draw is at them. We also are a few months out from the surprise firing of Kenny Atkinson. Now we have a little separation from him. Is it a little clearer why the Nets decided to move on from him? I definitely think he lost his voice in the locker room. And I, I also think that, um, you know, when things start to go bad, he wasn't really about changing his system. You know, if, if you read the, the story Sham Shirani and I wrote about the whole thing, he was very headstrong down the line, and you know I think coaching and life and relationships are all the game of adjustments. And he only seemed to want to play that so far down the the road. So I think there's blame to go on on you know the the players for checking out on him and, and why that is, and then just him, um, him kind of being the way he was with with being a stickler to a system. I, I think that that. That's another thing that can't be discounted. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking to the Athletics' Alex Schiffer about the Nets right now. Speaking of the Nets, one of the big names in the headlines of has been Kyrie Irving, who's drawn a lot of headlines for his thoughts about the restart in Orlando. There was questions about, like, how is you in the locker room? Like, how do you think Kyrie's place with the franchise is right now? I think it's pretty good. You know, I, I think he's still very well-liked and, and held in high esteem in the locker room. I, I do think that, you know, because of his previous history, he gets a raw deal sometimes in the public spotlight. I don't think that, I, I think, you know, he was doing his job by addressing concerns that the players had about going down to Orlando and he's a, a vice president for the Player Association and, and he has to take that stuff seriously. So 
So I, I don't think it's fair to, to go after him on all that, but I, I understand why his message was maybe taken the wrong way in some circles because he's not going to be playing Orlando. And, and I think that can definitely take a little bit of the oomph uh, behind the argument, if you will, just with him leading the charge and him not going to play there. But I, I do think that he, he was raising some valid concerns and points and definitely was, um, you know, wasn't out of line for, for bringing this up. I just think that the way it was or maybe because the the – him being attached to not playing down there already because of his shoulder injury kind of uh, distorted what, what people were going to think to begin with. Yeah, I think I'm with you there because I think I said this last week. I was talking to people. I said, you know what, Kyrie, he's he's not a, he's not dumb. He went to Duke. He's a very bright guy. He does say some kooky things. He has a little weird history in his background. Like, I wouldn't shoot the messenger. The message is not wrong, in my opinion. Yes, exactly, exactly. It, it's not about the message to me. It's either about the delivery or the fact, not the messenger, but just the idea that the messenger for all this isn't going to be the one playing the games which could and, be, and traveling down to Orlando, which could rub some people the wrong way. Yeah, speaking of somebody else who's not going to Orlando, it's Kevin Durant is not playing. He said recently that even if he was healthy, he wouldn't go because he's concerned about the whole situation. Do you think this gets the Nets fans a little frustrated with Durant? Because that's because there were rumors a couple of months ago when the Olympics were still a thing that he was willing to play for Team USA. But now he's supposedly healthy. He healthier. He won't play with the Nets in Orlando. I, I don't think they're frustrated. I don't really think they think that way in terms of the rush to get him back in a hurry or anything. Um, I, I really think that he was never really fully set or, or seriously entertained the idea of coming back this year. Um, you know, and with the injury concerns, you know, I think if Kyrie was healthy, we're having, again, a different conversation in that there's more reason for him to come back. But now I I just think that, um, what they have to play for down there and and the likely early agents are facing, I don't know what, what good that would have done other than for him to maybe get a feel with some of the guys he's playing with. So I, uh, I don't think there's frustration, you know, I mean, and the Team USA stuff started really before the pandemic, you know, got in the full swing and we understood what we were dealing with. So I, I understood his his desire to want to play for, you know, the Olympics. And, you know, I mean, he would have been, had there been no pandemic, what I want to say, 37 or so or 36 around the time or just mid-30s in general for the, you know, the next Olympics. So, I, I mean, what was he in his career at that point? Would he even want to play? Does he have a family? Um, you know, I think there were other concerns or, or just factors to consider his interest in USA. So I don't think they're frustrated at all. And um, I, I just think that you look at this as it was already a bit of a long shot from the play. So, I, you know, I, I think you can only get so upset about the whole thing. Yeah, that's a good point. There's not much for Durant to gain by going down there. Aside when you said playing a few games with his teammates. One of those teammates right now, Spencer Dinwiddie, might be at the end of his tenure at the Nets, supposed to be a free agent at the end of the year. Do you think this is the end of Dinwiddie with the Nets, or do you think he might be back next year? I want to say his extension kicks in for, for next year, and it's the following summer he could be a free agent. Um, I'm going to check that now. But I think he's going to be around for next season for sure, even just to play on a contender and then kind of see how everything goes from there. And does he want to be a starter or – well, yeah, I'm looking at Sports Rock. They said that, um, that yeah, he, he could opt out at the end of next season, it looks like. 
if he wanted to. But um, I, I do think he'll be in their plans at least for a little bit. You know, after that, it kind of depends. And um, and I, I think that he's what makes an entitled contender next year. And that you look at their second string, assuming Joe Harris resigns, I mean, I'm spitballing, but this is you know, starting five of Kyrie, Durant, Jordan, Joe Harris, and Levert. And then the second string is, you know, Torian Prince, Dinwiddie, Garrett Temple, Jared Allen, and, and, you know, we'll see about that final rotation spot. That's a pretty impressive, you know, team for being 9-10 deep. So I, I think that he wants to win a ring, and I, I definitely think that he thinks he could start in this league, too. And I mean, he, he's the ultimate Kyrie insurance in case he gets hurt. So, you know, is, is he a net in five years or four years? I'm not really ready to, to go that far. But for the next one to two, I, I would say so. Yeah, you mentioned the rotation depth, which is very impressive. And the one thing that's a question for Net fans, obviously we've heard the rumors that they might go exploring a third star with somebody like a Bradley Beal, for example. And you obviously get to part with some depth guys to make it happen. Maybe somebody like Karis LeVert could be involved in a trade, Jared Allen, to help bring a Beal in. Do you think they're going to go down that road? Do you think they're going to try and build more of what they have? I think it depends upon who you ask. Uh, I've been beating the drum all year that they could see what this team looks like with Durant and Kyrie healthy before making a move. And, I mean, the, the thing is, is that they have to create for a star that makes sense. I don't really think that Beal makes sense because, like, sorry, uh, almost like Durant and Kyrie, you know, he needs the ball in his hands a lot to do what he does best. And, you know, I don't think enough touches to go around through all three of them to keep everyone happy. And, you know, Beal has said before he doesn't want to get traded. He doesn't like change. You know, he, he's used to it down there. He wants to play with John Wall again. So, you know, there's a lot of smoke for the, the made-up smoke, really, for the Bradley Beal. Because there's a report in that thought about trying to trade him. But the Wizards aren't interested, and, and he's not interested right now. So, do you wait that out and see what develops there? Or do you kind of see what else is out there on the market? Or do you kind of see what this team looks like? I think, you know, all three hands aren't bad. But I think in the Eastern Conference, and that's going to be a top two, three team with the 10 deep I just discussed a little while ago, instead of, you know, having a three match salaries on the team and do a lot of roster gymnastics with the cap and all that. So nothing would surprise me. Um, if I had a bet right now, I think the next deployed a similar thing to what they have on paper right now, uh, whenever next season would start. Yeah, that makes sense. This is my last question. Obviously, we're getting about a month away from the restart of the season in Orlando, assuming everything goes according to plan. The coronavirus doesn't mess up too much. So if we end up playing basketball in July and August, like, what's the thing that you're most intrigued by seeing how this whole thing works work, out? Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't really know where to start on that. I mean, all of it. You know, I think it's going to be fascinating for, for not even just um, players in the bubble, but even, you know, reporters and and people in general, I mean, how do you adjust being kind of on house arrest at a Disney resort for three months? Um, you know, what does it look like without fans? You know, how quiet is it? What can you hear? What can you still not hear? Um, you know, can you hear coaches call out plays and how do they adjust from that? Do you hear guys trash talk? Uh, a lot of little things like that. Um, you know, what happens if a role player tests positive compared to a star player, especially in the playoffs? Are all things created equal or is it uh, you know, they suspend play for a Giannis or LeBron compared to a, uh, a Danny Green or Quinn Cook. Um, you know, and th those are just the first few things off the top of my head. I, I think a lot of it's going to be, be fascinating. And, um, 
and how quickly does it take for something to go wrong? You know, when does something go wrong? And how serious is it? I mean, you know, I've been seeing uh, another thing I've been saying throughout all this is that, you know, the first time you do anything in life, you know, you're, you're not really good at it. I mean, your first run of golf, uh, my first article, I hate to read right now, I'm sure your first podcast uh, is night and day from what you're doing now. You know, the first time a professional sports team comes back from the pandemic, uh, I'm sure there's going to be holes there. So what are they? How easy are they able to be dealt with? And um, and how feasible is this whole thing? So I, I know it's kind of a long answer there, but I I think there's there's a lot of ways to skin this in terms of fascination. Yeah, I think also if I was in your shoes, I'd be fascinated about how, like, the media is going to be allowed to cover Because obviously, like, if you're not going down there, you don't want to be, like, stuck in Disney for three months. Like, be a lot of, like, Zoom calls, do interviews with players, post-game, stuff like that. That stuff, I'm curious to see how they handle logistics for, like, local media. I agree. And, you know, it seems like there's going to be a lot of stuff over Zoom. But, you know, obviously the best stuff you get is when you're in a locker room. And, and finding those little stories is going to be fascinating just in terms of who gets what and how they're able to get it. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how the sports landscape plays out. Alex, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people keep up with you on social media and follow what you're writing for The Athletic? Uh, yeah, they can follow me at Alex, at Alex, two underscores, Schiffer, S-C-H-I-F-F-E-R on Twitter. All right, Alex, thanks again for everything. I really appreciate it. No problem, Mike. Thank you. All right, there you have it. That was Alex Schiffer from The Athletic talking about the Brooklyn Nets as they get ready to head into the retard of the NBA season down in Orlando. Up next, we're going to show me the money for the first time since Mark. We're going to talk a little more general about the NBA with Kevin Walsh and Martino Puccio from the Sports Grid right after this. Show me the money. All right, for the first time since March, showing the money is back. We are talking a little NBA playoff, playoff, regular season action, all this sort of blending together with this crazy Orlando setup. I got two people here with me from Sports Grid today talking about it. First up, you've heard him quite a bit on the podcast during quarantine. The great Martino Puccio is back. Martino, how are you? Not bad, Mike. Not bad. Uh, I, I put in a bet last night on the Celtics. So hopefully that hopefully that bet that uh, bet works out for you. Also with me today, so the guy who was here the last time we did showing the money, we went through the mock NCAA tournament. Kevin Walsh, also from Sports Grid. Kevin, welcome back. How are you? What's going on? Wow, keeping uh, I'm keeping showing me the money in business. It's, uh, it's good to be back, man. It is good to be back. I forget. Do you remember who we had winning the tournament when we did the fake tournament back in March? The safe, safe bet is that I gave it to Kentucky. Yeah. That's the safe bet. And I still got to get refunded on those futures bets that's in my wallet. Yeah, I had to get refunded on potential bets as well. My my bet here, I think I picked Kansas to win, but right now I'm keeping my eye on the baseball over-under because I, those numbers just came out, and they're very interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. There's, and, you know, the 59-game caveat, not a lot of breathing room. Uh, those <laughs> things could get voided, but... We stay optimistic. We'll stay optimistic. We're going to talk about the NBA today, though. So let's start off here. A little gel NBA talk. So obviously this is a much different world now than where it was when we shut the sport down in March. Back then, can you guys tell a little bit what you were feeling about the NBA season? I mean, I, I thought we had a good idea of three to four teams at the most that I thought were going to be able to win this title. It was really just for me the two L.A. teams. Um, Milwaukee, and then I think Toronto was 
a dark horse. I, I think they had definitely the best value out of all the teams to win the title, especially on FanDuel. They're like 2,800. Correct me if I'm wrong, because that still hasn't moved um, at all, even though we've seen like movement with a lot of other stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I was big I was big time off on the Rockets. I thought the Rockets um, heading in, going, going with the way they were playing, going very small. They got tired out all the time, James Harden and Russ. I just, I just didn't see it working out for them, especially the path that they would have to take. Um, but now I, I've completely almost done a 180 on them just because of the unprecedented break that went on. But, um, yeah, I mean, look, it was, we, we knew a lot going in. We were almost near the end of the season. So, I mean, not much has changed for me. Just a few teams I think benefited from health and rest. Yeah, I mean, just, just, you know, piggybacking off of, of that kind of, it, well, you know, the two big games that we got right before things closed down was Lakers, Bucks, Lakers, Clippers. And all year long, I've viewed the Lakers as the team that I would expect to win the title. And, you know, that stretch right there is going to do nothing other than kind of confirm it for somebody that had that opinion. The other game I'll offer you was March 2nd, um, again, which sounds like centuries ago, but in terms of right before we had closed up shop, you know, there's only a couple of games played after that date. When the Heat played the Bucks for only the second time all year long and beat them for the second time on the season, it just it was it was one of those things where you could see how the Heat might be a matchup that Milwaukee might dread if they do get seated against one another in the playoffs. Yeah, that's definitely fun to watch. I definitely am intrigued with some, a lot of these storylines. One thing that sort of piqued my interest is obviously the hub mile. Everybody's heading down to Orlando the next couple of days, next a couple of weeks or so to get ready for the season. And obviously, everybody's going to play out the year there. Do you think that the champ coming out of this hub, assuming we get there and the virus doesn't destroy everything, assuming we play out to the end, we get a champion, do you think they're legitimate because of the break or is it something more or something less? What do you guys feel about that? Yeah, so to me, I, I think... I think it's legitimate, but we have to see, right? So if we get a situation where, you know, you've got the Pacers against the Mavs in the finals, okay, something probably went wrong, and it's probably an asterisk. And no disrespect to those fan bases, but I think they would both have to acknowledge that they're far from the favorites to win the title. But if we end up getting the matches that we're supposed to get with without the key players missing, I don't view this as an asterisk. I think there really are, I think it's less than 10 players. It it might only be maybe five guys. It's it's a very small group of guys that if they miss time during this, during this window would require there to be an asterisk put on this season. Yeah, I could definitely see something like that. And I do think I'm intrigued also by the idea of seeing, you know, like what kind of teams do you think, benefit the most on this layoff like who you think comes back the best like we will start i'll start with you again martino like which sort of teams do you think are best suited to deal with the layoff okay yeah so i think there's actually a few teams to be honest with you and and there's definitely a case for a lot of them um i think i'll just start with the lakers just because look lebron james at his age anthony davis we know he gets banged up from time to time Listen, anytime LeBron gets rest, we saw what happened when he had a two-week rest once, and then he just went completely off. I know some people were off of last year with that, but that was an injury that was totally different and kind of like that rest he had with his first season back in Cleveland. Um, I think the Raptors really benefit well because 
their their main seven man rotation, their best seven guys that they roll with, didn't play more than eighteen games together during the regular season. So we didn't even get an opportunity to really see that core workout. Um, and then the Clippers and the Celtics to an extent. Like let, let's be real here, Paul George did not look anything close to the Paul George that we saw last year. I don't think we'll ever see that one again because Kevin also like an aberration of what happened. But I do think he can get somewhat close to that ceiling. And then the Celtics are well kind of in that, you know, tier with, with the Raptors. They weren't fully healthy all season. They have guys that are battle-tested in the playoffs, and they can make some noise. But but other than that, I think it's really those teams. I mean, Milwaukee was what it was. Maybe you could argue Giannis getting that rest that he needed because he was, you know, injured towards the end um, and all that stuff. So, I mean, it could benefit them, but I would stick with those few teams. And the Rockets. I will. Well, right. I was going to make that point, Martino, because it's something that, you know, you alluded to. It's something you and I talk about on Betting Around the Rim. James Harden, every year, we get to the postseason, we go, the workload destroyed him, and he's not going to be able to finish. That excuse doesn't exist, and it's nothing other than encouraging to see how much weight he has lost during this quarantine, because it just means that he's been keeping himself focused, locked in, and the variance that that team already brings to the table with their three-point shooting, you know, it's only a couple of games. If they get hot, they've got a pretty good shot. I will say this, though, about the Rockets. They are close enough to potentially land the three seed. They certainly are. They also open with the Dallas Mavericks, and if they lose that game, they're a half game back of the seven seed, and they might have to open with the Clippers if this thing slips for them. The Rockets are certainly a team to keep an eye on, but I think the rest, that this now provides for not only Harden, Westbrook wasn't playing back-to-back. He was on the same exact schedule as Kawhi Leonard. I I think the rest for their two stars is certainly a big thing for them. Yeah, one thing that caught my eye, just because of the health situation, I think is Portland coming back, because I think you're getting back both Zach Collins and Nurkic potentially from injuries, and that could be huge for that team. They were making a charge down the stretch. I don't know how the schedule works after them, but I've watched Portland as well. I'll, I'll say this, Mike. I'm personally getting ready, though, to fade Portland because I was excited as well about Collins and Nurkic, but then Trevor Reza pulls out, and I think that mattered way more than you would you would think on the surface. He came there, played 21 games for them. He started in all 21 games for them. They're pretty shallow when it comes to wing depth. He shot 40% in those 21 games from three. I like Collins. I like Nurkic, but they're also now coming back to a team with Hassan Whiteside. They've not really ever played with him before. Nurkic certainly hasn't. And those guys, I mean, you want to talk about rust. Those guys haven't played in a real game. Nurkic over a year. Zach Collins, by that point, it'll be close to eight months full, like a full eight months. I'm worried about Portland a bit. Well, that, that's actually hilarious that you just mentioned them because uh, <laughs> they just signed Jalen Adams um, to replace Trevor Reza, like literally the second. So, I mean, <laughs> he's MVP runner-up. Um Look, I mean, that adds to it. I still think Carmelo's a question mark. I, I, he, It's not a guarantee that he's going there. And, and it's a good point with Collins, too. Collins isn't even that experienced of a player either, you know? So you also have to worry about his development to an extent and then the rotation with Hassan Whiteside. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought if the regular season was going to play out normally, then I would have felt better about Portland. But just now, it's just... You know, eight games is a lot to ask, and they have to be within a certain range of the Grizzlies. Then you have to hope the Grizzlies mess up a little bit. 
it's, I mean, it's just going to take Damian Lillard to be his usual self around uh, playoff time. Yeah, I want to give you the plug there for breaking some news on the podcast here. <laughs> yeah, you did break some news. There was also some news broke that, that between my interview with Alex Schiffer and our recording on Monday night on the 29th that Spencer Dinwiddie has tested positive for coronavirus. He said he's experiencing symptoms, so his status for the reboot is in question. He might not go. We already talked about Trevor Reza not going. Avery Bradley's not going. Davis Burton's not going either, which I understand that because the Wizards are not getting to the playoffs and he's making a ton of money in free agency. So what do you think about the impact some of these sit-outs are going to have on this thing? Yeah, I think he's, he's a massive shift with that Dinwiddie stuff. If Dinwiddie does not play, the coveted two spot, which the Raptors do have right now, I do think they will get it, but they have one of the toughest schedules with the pick game stretch. Like, if they were to somehow lose, I would be borderline devastating to them because if you potentially match up against Philly instead of Brooklyn without Spencer Dinwiddie, without Kevin Durant, without Kyrie Irving, I mean, that's a massive blow, and that just makes your road to the playoffs and to the finals that much harder. So, I mean, that that's the real impact I see in terms of path and, and seeding. I'll say this. I think Martino's almost given the Nets a little too much credit here. Forget the seventh seed. That team's on the ropes when it comes to making the playoffs if Spencer Dinwiddie is not there. That's the go-to man, of course, with this absence of both Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. I like Kyrie LeVert. I think Jared Allen could be something. Forget Wilson Chandler just said he's going to be sitting out. The Nets open up the restart with the Orlando Magic. If they lose that game, and they actually opened as betting favorites, for that game, and they've already bet now, been bet two dogs pre-Dinwiddie announcement. Before that, people are fading this Nets team. If they lose that game, and the Wizards win their opener against the poor Phoenix Suns, they're then one game away, the Wizards, from triggering that plan. I think Brooklyn missing the playoffs as a whole is very much so on the table. There's also an interim head coach there. I don't know what to make of Jock Vaughn. Like, don't forget that they got rid of Kenny Atkinson. I think the idea that the Nets are out of the postseason is more plausible than ever before. Yeah, I'm intrigued by that. And then this, you mentioned the schedule. It did drop last week. Like, you got you guys got to take a deep peek at it. Like, what intrigues you the most about this schedule they've released? I'll tell you this. When it comes to the Pelicans, I know a lot of people joke about, all oh, the NBA, you know, they're doing all this just to get Zion in. First of all, they are businessmen. Let's not be silly here. Of course you want Zion in, especially when the first matchup would be against the Lakers when it's Zion-LeBron, it's AD versus the Pelicans, it's all of the guys that they say LeBron traded going, you know, now up against their former team. What are, you, are you kidding me? If they, like, it's as if they were booking a wrestling story. Of course they'd want that. But also... When the season came to a close, the Pelicans had the easiest remaining schedule in the NBA. There was a pretty good chance they were going to come for that eighth seed. I looked through that schedule, Mike. I think they're favored now in seven of their first eight games. They opened up as a small dog to the Utah Jazz in game one. They've already been bet to favorites. I think they're now going to be favored in seven of those eight games. And I'll push it a step further. It's not just about them triggering a play-in and maybe being able to beat Memphis twice. They might be the eighth seed going into the play-in, only needing to win once. That schedule is still so favorable for them. Yeah, for, for me, I'm going to roll with like the Sixers in this. They have one of the easier schedules coming into this. Right now, they're 
dead on tied with the Indiana Pacers. I do think as of right now, you could argue that the Sixers matching up against Boston with that big man discrepancy. And, you know, they moved Al Horford off the bench then. So they were, they were figuring things out there. But I think that's just a better matchup for them. But if they move up to play against Kevin Keith, you know, I'm not entirely convinced they can get past that. I think that might be a better matchup for them against Boston. But I do think they're obviously capable of beating the Heat. I think they also benefit from not playing on the road, per se, right? Everyone's a neutral court. Mm -hmm. Then I do think that matters. But you could also spin it the other way, saying, like, they're not playing behind their home crowd. We don't know what's going to happen, right? Um, and I'm a little skeptical, obviously, of Ben Simmons. If you read some of the reports of that game when he was playing in Milwaukee, he was throwing up in because he was in so much pain with his face. And you're just like, how the hell, like, like what is that? Like, I've never heard of anything like that before. But Sixers still trotted him out there. And then there was issues with Joel Embiid's conditioning. And, and again, the condensed schedule, is he going to be able to handle that? But they're lucky that they're getting this type of schedule. They're lucky that I don't think Oladipo is going to be there for the Pacers, that it's a viable for them to get the fifth seed. So for me, I think the Sixers are definitely the most intriguing one in the East with all this. Let me piggyback off that quickly, though, if, if you don't mind, Mike, because he's making a great point there. This is a difficult spot for Philly, because not only could you argue Boston is a better matchup for them than Miami, but now if you're on the 4-5 line, you see Milwaukee sooner than later. And the problem is, with this now all being neutral sites, like Philly has a schedule where they could get up to the 4 seed, but that's meaningless. The 4 is the exact same thing as the 5. And their first game is against the Pacers. They're favored in that matchup. So the odds are, and they're going to be favored comfortably in their first six games, the Sixers. The odds are they're going to move up to the fifth or the fourth seed. Unless Miami, who, based on some strength of schedule metrics, do have the toughest eight-game stretch here. Unless Miami bounces back to six and the Sixers get themselves drawn with the Pacers in round one, I think Martino's making a great point that this is a weird thing where winning games might not be in their favor because of matchups. Yeah, I wanted to expand more on the Sixers, but because of the home court thing that Martino mentioned, they like their splits are ridiculous. Totally. I mean, twenty nine and two at home, ten and twenty four on the road. It's it's just absurd. And also throw in their Miami twenty seven and five at home, fourteen and nineteen on the road. Those two teams now they are not playing in front of their fans. They're going to be in truly neutral site things. Does this help them? Does this hurt them? I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of the of the Orlando angle here because those two teams have shown a complete inability to win outside their buildings against anybody of note. And I don't know how this lands for you, Martino, but to me, it's almost impossible to tell. Yes, they now have lost their home court advantage, but they're now also not traveling anywhere. And sometimes with those teams like Miami and Philly, it's a focused thing. When you're traveling, you're not as locked in. I would argue to you that this bubble type of situation should eliminate some of that. If you're not focused in that bubble, then I don't know what to say for you. So if I had to choose between this being better or worse for those home court needy teams, I might lean towards better. I, I agree with that as well, only because some are just so bad on the Like, Kenneth <laughs> is absolute garbage. And, and I'm sorry, that is something that matters when you want to win a championship. But you know what? You got lucky. And if Philly doesn't actually turn it around, 
when this kind of goes in their favor, then I'm not sure this core will ever win together. And I mean, it could be over as soon as this falls. Mm -hmm. Because it's really at that point for me, in my opinion. Unless they make real strides or unless they just simply get rid of Brett Brown or they do get rid of Brett Brown and they trade an ending. Like, it's, it's really potentially down to that. Especially if there's a first round exit. Yeah, it will be fascinating because, like, as Alex Schiffer said earlier in the podcast, it's basically the equivalent of, like, the NBA basically players basically being a house on in-house arrest at, at Disney Resorts for three months. So this is something none of them have ever experienced before. So whoever adapts to this, maybe he does play the bad for Philly or Miami, who absolutely stinks on the road, or maybe it hurts them because they're like, you know, we can't be in front of our home fans. Like, this is all things we don't know. I think it's what makes all the, the, fun, the betting fun, all the angles fun, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I mean... I, you guys are more on the lines than I am. Like, how much have you seen some of these lines shifting as a result of the neutral site, knowing there's no real home court advantage for anybody? Yeah, I mean, they they pulled, you know, they now, those those two and a half to three points that you get, they've completely um, taken out. I've been following the lines of the FanDuel Sportsbook um, has posted pretty much since they got up there. And I think what we're seeing is, look, they gave you an initial number. But they're not scared to get off of it. Case in point, the Spurs opened up as a point and a half favorite to Sacramento. Before I put my head to rest, they were two-point dogs, the Spurs. And they're now three-point dogs. Kings money came in, and the books were like, okay, fine. I think this is a situation, at least in the early going, I, I, they're, they're kind of at the mercy of the better. That's when you have an opportunity to win. Yeah, so how would you be playing this? Like, what would your strategy be to try and take advantage of some of these lines? I, I mean, I'll, I'll start here, Martino. I think for me right now, I still want to wait till we can cross that July 1 threshold because that's really supposed to be the hard date for players saying in or out. Um, I will say, though, the, the plus money number that the Pelicans are offering to be the ace feed. I think right now it's plus 380 at the FanDuel Sportsbook. I would um, I would certainly take a look at. I, just because it's a nice plus money bet, I don't think you want to get too far ahead of yourself in the futures market. If you wanted to look for a game-by-game bet, I'll offer you a dog. I mentioned the Wizards beating the Suns. Last I saw, they were three-point dogs to the Phoenix Suns. To me, they just have so much to play for then Phoenix does that Washington team. As long as Bradley Beal's there, I think that the Wizards should win that basketball game. That's one game that I might be willing to bet now, even though we're about a month away. I, I do think Toronto to win the East at plus 800 on FanDuel definitely represents the best value. And if you feel confident enough about the Sixers and for them to overcome all that stuff, and you like the matchup against Boston, and if you think they'll stay at the 60, then plus 900, I could see where you're coming from there. I don't think it's the Celtics year. I think next year is like kind of where you would shift to think maybe they have a shot at the Eastern title, depending on how Milwaukee goes down. Um, Toronto, again, for just the NBA title, uh, plus 2,400. I, I do love both L.A. teams uh, to, to win the finals. I, I think one of those two teams will win it. I'm not fully convinced of Milwaukee. I'm not convinced of that supporting pass that Giannis has will step up. I'm not really sure if Chris Middleton really is a number two on a title-winning team yet, even though I think he's a really good player. Um, 
So for for some of the single game stuff that I've seen, um, I see Orlando minus one and a half for the first game against the Nets. Now, if I'm under the assumption that Spencer Dinwiddie isn't going there, then I'm taking mm-hmm. it. And then even if Dinwiddie is there, you know, I'm not even that convinced that, like, he'll be 100% too because he has been showing symptoms. God forbid, like, we, we don't know what symptoms he does have. But if it has to do with some of the breathing, then I'm not sure how his conditioning will get up. So, I, Like, that would scare me off, right? And then even if he doesn't play, like Jonathan Isaac on Karis LeVert, when Karis LeVert is the one carrying the load, like I'm taking Isaac as much as I like LeVert. Um, and then even the Celtics, whatever, call me biased. I think five's kind of a big number <laughs> one game back. Um, plus five against Milwaukee, I think they can cover in that one. So th- those are kind of early things that I see there. Um, and then I-, I do like New Orleans minus 130 as well on the money line against Utah. Because I still don't think Utah, they're not going to have Bogdanovich. They're, I certainly don't think they'll have Joe Ingles. Mike Conley uh, might as well go back to Ohio State as an assistant coach at this point. Um, <laughs> I really just don't like the Jazz. I think the Jazz would also be the upset they get bounced in the first round out of all um, the favored teams. Yeah, one thing I'm intrigued at, I want to get your guys both take on this. Obviously, you talk about the Nets with the whole Dinwiddie situation, and there's a good chance he doesn't go down to Orlando. And that team has a lot of issues. They have... A bunch of guys not there. There's no Kyrie's walking through the door. Durant's not walking through the door. Dinwiddie's not there. Like, what would you think about doing a speculative bet on the Wizards to beat them out and get into the playoffs as the eight seed? Do it. I say do it. It's 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 seventeen to one at the FanDuel Sportsbook. We've actually been saving this Nets team as soon as these lines got posted because to me, I thought there was just opportunity based on numbers alone. Seventeen to one again. I I know how far back they are, and I get it. Even in a play-in game, they got to win two in a row before the Nets win one. But the that team without Dinwiddie, you have to know, right? Based on like the salary cap, they'd be missing their three best players in Durant, Kyrie, and Spencer Dinwiddie. That's going to lead to them having a weakened roster. Bradley Beal will be the best player on the court for the Wizards. In those, or enough just for the Wizards, for all of those teams, seventeen to one, Mike, seventeen to one. That's incredible value. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm just a little weary of, you know, these two teams. Like, what do the Wizards really have to play for here? Uh, and I've said this, like, in their best interest, is it is it worth it to bring all these guys? Is it worth it to tell Bradley Beal, hey, we want you go to Orlando? Um, and there hasn't been any reports otherwise. This is just kind of me just thinking in terms of the Wizards, because say John Wall isn't healthy and he comes back, and then Bradley Beal somehow gets injured in the taking stretch, and then Bradley Beal has one year left on his deal, and God forbid he's not playing in this last year of his deal, and you can't trade him. And if you do trade him, you're really not going to get a lot for him. So I, I think there's a lot on the line there. And also, again, play devil's advocate with the Nets, too. Does DeAndre Jordan go for this? Like, well, what's the point in bringing him there? Do they want to keep Jared Allen? Because Jared Allen... There was rumors that he might get traded too. I think there's just a lot that's up in the air. But like Kevin was saying, if you're going to get them at 17 to one now, I don't think it's going to get any lower than that because it's mm-hmm. before Dinwiddie's final decision. So if he doesn't go, then that's going to move up again. So you might as well do it now. Yeah, I think that's one is the case. We're kind of looking for opportunity here, and this is one where you can take a gamble here and like. 
at 17 to 1, if you like, if you really believe in it and you happen to like have a strong f- feeling on Dinwiddie, like you could get a big return if you happen to like play that correctly. And that's, and look, the thing is, right? You, so you play it for 10 bucks, right? And you yeah. would win $170. And if Bradley Beal, for, well, honestly, very valid reasons that Martino listed didn't go, then you lost a 17 to 1 bet because, yeah, the odds would go down so far. But you, you know, obviously, I don't think you'd start to double up then. Like, it's not even about beating the number if it goes backwards. That's the best number you're going to get on something that you would actually want to go out there and play. I don't see why not. This, again, they're bringing an interim head coach than that. Like, this whole season for the Nets was never about this year. And just all year long, they're just piling on the evidence. Oh, Kyrie played 10 games. No Durant. Kenny Atkinson fired. And, you know, like, this is not their year. And for Bradley Beal, just to answer Martino's questions about, like, oh, what's the point? And I'm not saying, look, this is maybe too prideful. The idea of Bradley Beal missing out on the all-star team because his team was not good enough and then making the playoffs is something that I think he would take pride in. Asterisk. Yeah, well, listen, he's going he's gonna to talk about it. And, I mean, look, there's an aspect of the fact that they left him probably out of the all-star game. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, Dam- Damian Lillard can, can tell that. Too. Yeah, no, I no, I agree with that. I'm not, I'm not going to disagree. I'm he might gonna... sneak on an all-NBA team if they – maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's a bridge too far. But he that. might sneak on all-NBA three. Yeah, that's definitely interesting to see. Also, one thing I'm curious about is obviously, like, with the numbers on here, obviously we know there's going to be, like, a big, like, intake of testing once these teams get to camps and all that. Would you be looking to try and walk in some numbers now before you get results for these things and see if more people test positive or you try and wait it out a little bit and see if if any of the numbers fluctuate a little bit? Um, Yeah, so like what Kevin Kevin was saying and what we usually say is that if you feel strongly about something, right, and you see the number that you think isn't going to get much better than that, like the Wizards 17 to 1, then you do. You put it in. Again, at the end of the day, if you're just putting down $10, right, you're not much of a high roller. $10 is fine. It's respectable. I do it often. Whatever. It's, you're losing $10. Like, you're staying inside. You're not spending money on gas. You're not spending as much money on food and in other necessities that you would be because we're in a pandemic right now. So if you think about that, okay, $10 instead of going to Chipotle or Jack and Coke in midtown Manhattan, I'm going to put it towards the Withers making the eight seed. And you know what? I got 170 bucks. So when the the bars do open back up, I can go get myself some bottle service. And that's probably <laughs> <laughs> And really, in the end, it's all about what you're risking. If you're really not risking that much at the end of the day, then you might as well go for it because you've seen crazier things, right? And also, if you're out there and you go, I'm going to bet Team Y because they're going to stay COVID-free, go play lottery, dude. What? How do you have that idea? Like, that's a crazy thing for you to be able to try and predict. I think it is, though, a good reason why people might be safest playing the NBA restart game by game. Futures are always attractive, but you got to try and be somewhat realistic. If you 100% believe that this benefits the Rockets like no other team, then yeah, go for it. If you believe that the Sixers are going to get out hot and they're going to live up to their potential, go for it. But right now, because of the times we are living in, playing this game by game is your safest bet. Yeah, I would agree with that because obviously, like, 
If you know they're going to play tomorrow, that's a safer bet to at least get some action than to hope that you get all the way to October with, with no setbacks, nobody, no big outbreaks. Like, that's a big gamble because if you're hoping to make cash, the sooner you get a return, the better it would be. Yeah, and I'll tell you this. I've seen, you know, some odds makers talk kind of how they're going to handle if teams are impacted by COVID. And I think they said that they're probably just going to have to treat it like an injury. So if you go out there again, you play, I'm not going to name it, you play a future on Team Z and their best player all of a sudden goes down, they're not going to refund your bet. So that's why to me, like the Pelicans number at plus 380, I don't mind going right now because that's going to happen in an eight-game window. Zion's going. We're hearing great things about Zion. I'm good, right? Like I'm willing to play that future. It's in a smaller window. But I'm not rushing over to the book to put in an NBA championship future right now. Yeah, I don't I don't blame you there. And speaking of NBA championships, like let's put it out there. Like if you were going to pick right now and let's knock all knock on wood wherever we are and assume that, you know, we get lucky with the virus and they're able, and the bubble works and people stay healthy and enough people are there to play this out. We get who is going to the finals. So look, to me, I've been consistent all year. I think it's going to be the Lakers to win this whole thing. I can only gain confidence from how they closed out the the season before things closed up, even though they managed to lose to the Nets right after beating the Bucks and the Clippers, because of course the East is a, it's a little bit more difficult. Milwaukee is rightfully a favorite, but they were also rightfully a favorite last year. I think the matchup that is Miami is a scary one. I think Brad Stevens and Nick Nurse are incredible coaches. I think the Sixers have this ceiling that is one of the best in all of basketball. I don't know if they reach it. I think right now, though, it's a lot of question marks for me when it comes to these teams in the East. So just from a I'm not looking to give you a hot take, Mike. I, I, right now, my expectation is a Lakers-Bucks final. Yeah. So, look, I've been back and forth on who will be um, winning this title. But I did predict preseason. I, I said Lakers versus Sixers. And then the Sixers obviously did what they did. So, I really have no confidence in them, for the most part, in making it. Although, you know, you never know. You know, sometimes things can just click. But for me... I think I'm leaning to Toronto to make it out mm. of the East. Um, look, I just don't – I have to see it from Milwaukee. Yeah, I, I am one of those guys. Like, I, I literally just have to see it out of Giannis. Because Giannis right now is where LeBron was prior to winning his first NBA title. I do – and obviously it's, it's a little different because they're different players, but I, I still think a lot of people are questioning if Giannis – We'll leave that mark with that legacy. I I think they're very deep. I think Bugenholzer has a lot to prove. But as of right now, I, I lean to Toronto because they're so battle-tested and I think they're so disrespected. And I think they know that and they're going to be there longer in Orlando than anyone else will be. So I think they're going to be better prepared for it. Um, look, as much as I want to say the Clippers, I think the Clippers have a few more question marks than most teams. And I really do. And... And you know what? Like, if the Clippers are healthy, they can certainly win this whole thing. It's not out of the realm of it. But for me, I feel like this is the last hoorah for LeBron. I think, like, this is the last time we see him as one of the favorites. and Like, clear top two teams. And I'm having a hard time betting against him. 
I don't know what it is. I think I'm going to go just Lakers over Raptors in six games. I'm telling you right now, Mike, Martino has been doing this to me now for years. In the same breath, tells me that LeBron is done, but he's got him winning the title. And I don't know whether to be happy with him or angry with him. I don't know. <laughs> he's, he's killing me, dude. He's killing me. When, when did I say LeBron is done? You're straight there, though. You, you don't know if he's going to be able to get back to the promised land. No, I'm not. obviously being a bit dramatic. I know I'm being a bit dramatic. Favorite as the main favorite. That's different. As the yeah, main, I hear you. Look, because, because there's a possibility that it's just Giannis's league soon. I think it's kind of like that where LeBron and Kobe were, where Kobe was in 2010, where he's still the main guy, quote-unquote, because he won the title. And LeBron is still, like, technically the best player. I mean, he's still the best player now, I think. But, like, I, I don't know. I have question marks about it. Eventually, the guy is going to have to fall off. I'm just saying there's a possibility that this might be the last time we see LeBron as we've known him his whole career as the face. But he could easily do it next year. I'm just saying it's possible. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, next year's a whole other interesting deba- debate because we don't know what the schedule's going to look like yet. I and mean, We don't know how compressed it's going to be. If there's going to be a lot more back-to-backs and load management to an extreme. So. December a disaster. I'm sorry. I'm just saying that right now. I think that would be a, a terrible thing, and I don't think they've really backed off on it. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think it's stupid. No, what I, is that? What are you saying is stupid? The December 1st start date for the next season. I think. Oh, yeah, that's going to get pushed back. There's no way. I think we're going to get a shortened season, though. I don't think we're playing 82 next year either. I, I think if you want to play the regular calendar as soon as possible, you're not playing 82 next year. I think you're playing probably like 66 like you did during the last lockout. I think it's fine. It's just fine. They don't need that many games. The only reason the games are going on that high is because the owners want the gate revenue, which is what we see in baseball them fighting over for the past, like, three months. Wait, it's a money issue? Wow, I'm stunned. <laughs> I've never seen those before. It's also, too, is they want to get these guys to not only get back on schedule, but there is this desire to be able to send people to the Olympics. And I see, I said it was going to be this summer, and things kind of washed away. But if they can get everybody healthy, the next Olympic team, I think, has a chance to be the best Olympic team ever. But I don't know who's going to go, so it might not even matter. <laughs> you said 2012 was the best, and then 2016 came out, and then you're like, it's dumb, it's dumb. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, because all these teams would still beat the the Dream Team because the Dream Team – listen, it wasn't Larry in his prime. It wasn't Magic in his prime, and we know that, and that's why it's not an insult. Yeah. No, I know. I'm just keep moving. Each team, each next Olympic team is the best team. That's that's why because things keep progressing forward and players keep getting better. Right? Look, all I'm saying is if that starting lineup is Steph, Harden, LeBron, Durant, and AD, oh my goodness, <laughs> oh my goodness, that would be something. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a lot of fun talking to basketball guys. Before I let you guys go, I do want to get your take on the on some base on a couple of baseball throws real quick. Because I'm going to be doing over on this podcast in a few weeks about the baseball season again. Knocking on wood that we get it. That and look at the numbers in here and the over unders for the 60 game season are very fascinating. And one I think it's always funny is I was going to the Orioles because they're such a disaster. Twenty and a half wins projected for the Orioles in a 60 game season. I still might take the under. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, I get it. I don't. I think last year they had won 19 games through the first 60. The thing is, you are right there. 
Like, if you wanted to play the over for them or, the, say, the Tigers, you're going to end up right there in a 60-game sample size. Yeah. Like, I found a couple I already am intrigued by. Like, their one, like, the Red Sox under, I'm very intrigued by. I never liked that team to begin with. I think it's too high. Like, I think the Reds over is intriguing. There's a lot of interesting numbers on the board. I, I, yeah, I like the I like the Reds actually, Mike. I was th- I was thinking about that too. Like thirty one and a half, I think, with that pitching staff. Um, yeah, I think it's the, it's the most underrated staff in the game in terms of like you know casual fans' opinions go. Um, mm. Look, I'm telling you right now, there is a year for the freaking Mets to do this. Thing. It's not this one. It's not this one. Yeah, well. It it would be this this one. The year they can't have any fans there. The year they can't have a parade. The year they're desperately trying to sell the franchise. That would be the Mets win. No, I see. I'm going the other way with it. I think that because there, I think there's good news on the horizon. The Wilpons are going to tell again. Yes, again. And I think because of that, it's going to, it might bottom out. I think it might bottom out just for one last hurrah. I just don't get the Dodgers being heavy favorites. I get it. You don't? I no, no, no. I just don't get heavy favorites in this type of season. That's all. That's fair. No, no. I see that. I agree with. See, I think the Dodgers are the best team in baseball. I think yeah. I might even bet the Dodgers over, but they're like minus seven hundred to win their division in a sixty-game sample size. That's outrageous. Like, in the same breath that I tell you I like the Dodgers over, I think I would play the Padres or the Diamondbacks to win the NL West because you can't be a minus 700 favorite. Well, I'll say the same thing to eliminate all bias. The same thing is true in the AL East. If you want to play the Rays, if you want to play the Blue Jays, even, you know, I won't say, you know, Baltimore's a joke, right? But, like, the Yankees being a minus 350 favorite in a 60-game sample size, I don't think you can make that bet. Yeah. Oh, they went to 290 now, I see, so... Okay. Yeah, I think the, yeah. I think the baseball is fascinating I, I, because they have such a short sample size that like all it takes is for one really good team to get out of the gate slow and they're and they're done. Like I think this is I, why I think this is a year to go if you want if you like the Reds bet the Reds if you like the Padres bet the Padres because the return the number is still high and you're getting massive returns. I really mm-hmm. think it's for MVP man. I really do. I I, I think it's like if like Degrom just has that stretch or Mad Max has that stretch. Plus four thousand, like the the weight of those like twelve to thirteen starts or whatever it might be, like that right there is just like it could be enough, you know? Because if if you win your division by a game or two, you're like that's simply because Degrom and Scherzer were just shutting out guys. But again, you never know what can happen in sixty games. Yep. I'll yeah, I was saying, I, I'll just say I think too. You could see a world, I think, where someone like Chapman wins the Cy Young for like, I think relief pitchers now have a better chance because they're going to make way more appearance, way more appearances. Um, last year, Garrett Cole pitched in game 60 for the Astros and it was start number 13. I think you're looking at relief pitchers there. They might, there's going to be relief pitchers that triple the, the amount of appearances to these starters. And in this condensed schedule, it might matter more than it usually does. Yeah, and that might not be good for the Met fans who got one of the worst bullpens in baseball last year. You see the bullpen get that much more work. No pressure, no pressure, Edwin Diaz. There's no pressure, baby. We're just going to yell at you from our home. different. Yeah, they they actually do something like they put like fans like on Zoom calls on the scoreboard they were doing for the NFL draft. Then Diaz might have trouble. But they just keep it quiet. And I think they, they have a chance. 
just a bunch of Mets fans boozing and crying. That's, that's all it's going to be. <laughs> well, that was definitely a fun little sidetrack into baseball, but we'll wrap it up here. I do want to thank you guys for coming on. Uh, Martina, you want to go first with your social media, Kevin, then you can go after you guys and tell me about how we can keep up with you on the sports grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at Martino Puccio on Twitter, it's obviously uh, a bunch of the sports, baseball, basketball. Um, obviously, it's mainly soccer right now, so just give me a few weeks, and then there'll be more of the other sports stuff. But, uh, yeah, and you can find us there, and then I guess I'll just wait for Kev to plug the show. Yeah, I'm over uh, at the Kevin Walsh on Twitter, but check us out for Betting Around the Rim. Uh, me and Martin, it's a two-hour show on the weekends, talking all things NBA. Martino and I do an hour, do the other hour. Uh, with our guy Jared Smith from uh, the Sports Grid, and and we hit everything over there, and we're doing a lot of good stuff with the Sports Grid uh, right now. I'm featured over um, at the early on the early line, which is the morning show from seven to nine Monday to Friday, and I know Martino is over uh, at the Free Kick. Um, there's nobody I trust more for the soccer info, so check us out with everything we got going on at the Sports Grid. Yeah, indeed. I also give Martino a shout out too for the State of Play podcast he's part of, getting picked up by the Athletics Podcast Network. So he, in a way, is a indirect coworker with with Alex Schiffer, my guest from earlier. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, but more congratulations on a money base. Um, who knows if you oh. play MSU, but man, that's like a, that's freaking god in in a, in a sophomore in high school. <laughs> so congrats yeah. on that. <laughs> Yeah, there's talk he's going to reclassify into 2021, which means he'd play a year there guaranteed, and then that would be a lot of fun. Oh, I didn't see that. Oh, okay, okay. Yes, that's okay. Which Guys, is, if who's listening, like this kid is definitely the best high school basketball player since LeBron James. And, and like, I know we saw Zion and do what he did, but I don't think there's anyone as polished overall as him on his. Yeah. I'll tell you what, man. Like, It's no wonder that we had the year off when it comes to prospects, because we got Zion, year off, Cade Cunningham, and then it could be Amani Bates right after. We, it would have been almost selfish for us to expect like an all-world player. Although I'm excited about what Lamelo can do, um, but I guess maybe that's why this draft class upcoming is so um, unexciting. Yeah, well, I will say this: if Amani does come and he is, it does reclassify for 21 and plays the year in Michigan State. That Zion mania, this will be that on steroids, watching this kid play every night. Ooh, I don't know. About, see, I love Imani, but Zion was at Duke, and Zion is a bigger highlight because of the athleticism. I'm excited about Imani. He might, and I mean, better player. Like, we'll see. The kid's a, you know, a junior. I guess he could be a, you know, a senior, but um, I think, I don't know. That Zion thing, man, that was, dude, at Duke, with the, the second and third best players in the class and the top point guard, they went out there game one. I'll admit it. They made Kentucky look like they were a high school basketball team. I don't know. I don't. I like Amani. He's going to need a bunch of other dudes to show up with him. Though. Yeah, well, Izzo, like that, he might be able to bring some with him if he get if because Izzo has scholarships coming up after next year, so there will be opportunities to add guys. Yeah. Is Amani a Michigan kid? Is that what, like, yeah. it's where a, this comes from? Yeah, Michigan State has been scouting him since the seventh grade, and they've even built the relationship with him, which I think he said played a lot into the decision because the, the bigger coaches didn't bother with him because, you know, what, he's going to go to the NBA, which I think shame on them because you never rule out anybody. The win for talk, talk to them. That's how, that's how the recruiting works these days. Um, honestly, it's, it's honestly such a great guess for, for Michigan State if they do. Uh, if he does end up going there because, I mean, again, just 
it's absurd. It's absurd to, to watch him. But um, again, yeah, it'll be tough with the hype stuff because Zion was the most hyped athlete I remember coming out making a debut probably since Strasburg. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. Before I let you go, have either of you guys seen the Netflix movie about the about the high flying bird about the world of basketball in a quarantine and, and there's a lockout situation? You, either of you seen that? No, no. Okay, well, I am going to be talking about that next. I have the great Alan Austin joining the podcast. If you want to check that out, just stay tuned right after this. Hey, everybody. Mike Phillips here. Just wanted to touch base with you guys again before we get to our segment talking about High Flying Burr with Alan Austin. Literally minutes after I got off the call with Kevin Walsh and Martino Fuccio, news broke that DeAndre Jordan also tested positive coronavirus, so he is also sitting out in Orlando. Will be interesting to see what happens with the Nets going forward. And that Wizards bet we discussed seems like a much more promising bet to make given the lack of players the Nets may be fielding down in Orlando. Without further ado, let's go to our high-flying bird chat with Alan Austin. We are back here wrapping up the podcast this week, talking pop culture. We're going to talk about a Netflix basketball movie today. It's actually not really about basketball. Talking High Flying Bird with the great Alan Austin. Alan, welcome back. How are you? Thanks, Mike. Always good to be here. I appreciate you having me. No problem. As you know, I've been sort of theming these pop culture segments towards the sport we're doing of late. We did Space Jam recently done hockey movies. The last time you and I, you were on here, we did some golf. Today, we're going to talk about High Flying Bird, which I think you would agree, very interesting movie. Yes, it was very interesting. And it's it's such a a nice think piece. You know what I mean? From from an acclaimed director like Steven Soderbergh, who's made some big time movies. I I would consider this one of his experimental movies, and I think it really, really is is just a nice job. Yeah, it is. Before we dive deeper into the movie, can you give everybody the the elevator pitch of what High Flying Bird is about? Kind of timely with the baseball situation the way it is. Not exactly the same thing, but it centers around an NBA lockout where it seems though as though there is no end in sight at the beginning of the movie. And an agent uh, comes into play with his star client who is, you know, he's a typical player. I don't want to say they don't paint him as dumb but he's definitely not going to solve the crisis, so to speak. He's just waiting and waiting and waiting. And the agent takes it upon himself to kind of concoct a plan to get the league and the owners to agree on something. I guess that's a very much a basic, bare-bones plot line, plot outline. Yeah, I think that's a fair description. Basically, the agent, Ray Burke, at the end of the movie, he gets called into his office, which, by the way... People are not aware. Like I used to intern at SNY. That was at the office of the agency at the SNY Production Studios. It's actually pretty cool. Like behind the scenes tidbit there. He basically gets told in the movie, like, "Look, this lockout's going on for a while. Like we don't know how much longer we're able to keep you on." So Ray takes on himself, like, in order to save my job, save other people's jobs, I'm gonna get the NBA to play again. Yes, and the way he does it is very Soderbergh-like, which I thought was very cool. You always like. I feel like Steven Soderbergh's known for having characters who are witty, who are, they always feel like they know something others don't, at least the main characters who do that, had schemes or plots. 
for better or worse. So, you know, Ray Burke takes on that persona and this is a very low key movie. I wouldn't really call it a basketball movie as much as I'd call it a social kind of commentary kind of film. And I loved it. I, I thought it was really cool. I thought the acting across the board was very stellar. No one was over the top. Everyone, you know, just lived their roles. And I, I just want to go back. When I, when I said that they don't paint the basketball, they don't paint the basketball player as dumb. I think what they are trying to say is that the players are just a cog in this system. And the commentary is how to take that system down that makes any sense yeah it does because throughout the movie ray's basically telling his client he's basically saying like hey like the league is going to use you they're going to let you go you should take more authority of your brand and make more about you and take control of your destiny i think that's sort of the message he's trying to convince his client to take yes especially young black athletes and and they they reference the game over the game often which i think is a commentary on the white owners you know taking control over the black players and yeah, they're giving them money and salaries, but still they're controlling their destiny within the sport. And I do think the, you know, having Dr. Harry, Harry Edwards come in at the end, there's definitely a point that is proven. And I commend uh, Soderbergh for taking the subject matter and giving it light because it it's a very interesting thing to think about. And I think it dates back to there, there was an old book I read in my, uh, you know, in one of my history of sports classes way back in college where it's like modern day gladiators, just people out there, you know, for the entertainment of others who sit around watching. Now the difference is obviously the gladiators were slaves and people who had no other choice. Meanwhile, athletes are getting paid millions and millions of dollars, but it is the same idea where there are those controlling the game around. And I think it's a very interesting and deep dive on such a low-key movie, I think it's it's very well done. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I like the, the concept itself is very interesting because it's sort of like a sports movie without any sports in it. Like, aside from, like, one, two, like, 30-second, like, sequences basically on a social media video, you don't see any actual basketball played in the movie. It's just about the people working around the sport, the sport and talking about, like, you know, the relationships between owners and players, the cultural dynamics of the black athlete, like, this is, I also think, like, the idea of sports, that sports is very interesting, considering we're in this quarantine state where you haven't had a team sporting event since the middle of March, and they're about to come back now. So that was an interesting time to be looking at this. I think I think it's so, if the movie came out today, it would be 10 times bigger than it wound up being. Because right now, with the racial injustice in the country and the sports lockout, it, it's two birds, one stone, in terms of coverage of stuff that needs to be talked about. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. And I do think the piece is interesting. I know Soderbergh has hinted that now they're thinking about doing a movie like going forward, sort of like a spiritual sequel is where they basically talk about how like basketball players are adapting to life without basketball, sort of like a, a basketball quarantine movie. I do think that would be an interesting follow-up. Honestly, I think anything Soderbergh touches would be interesting in the least to at least check out. But if he's, if he's basing it around the, the world he kind of created in High Flying Bird, I think it's definitely must-see. Yeah, I would like to see that as well. And one thing that's another interesting note about this is that the entire movie was actually shot on iPhone 8s. So there were no fancy film cameras. 
this is all done with a camera on an iPhone. And I think I like the way they're able to use the position of the camera because they had the phone. You could put it at angles you can't normally get a camera into and create some interesting perspectives. For sure. And I think the fact that it is a low-key movie, like the script doesn't call for anything crazy. There's no digital effects necessary. There's no, you know, big scene like, let's say, another Soderbergh, uh, an Ocean's Eleven, where you need a casino and you need all the. There's nothing. It's a dialogue-heavy movie, and you get the fact that he can shoot it on the iPhone. I think helps not make the audience experience feel underwhelming. So, if he were to make, like, let's say this was a theatrical release, I don't think it would land. You know what I mean? It, it's not a big enough film. It's not a big enough script for people to feel they need to pay 15 bucks to go see in theaters. But because of Netflix and its capabilities, Soderbergh is able to experiment. So he takes this script that may not have gotten greenlit because it's not flashy enough. He puts it, you know, he lowers the budget incredibly and he gets it made. And a lot of that has to do with being able to shoot it on the iPhone. Yeah, I would agree with that. This script, as you look at it, it kind of feels like this is something you could do as a stage play if you wanted. Like, it doesn't feel like it needs to be a movie, but I think the way that this was handled on Netflix with the iPhone, I think, added to the experience. Yeah, I had one friend who said that he thought it would be good as a 10-part miniseries, but I actually think it's good as is. I think if you expand it too much, you might lose the main focus of the story, which is, you know, the 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 athlete rising up to take control of his own life and the people around him who are there to support him, I think that would get lost over 10 episodes where you would have to explore many other things and maybe go down rabbit holes that don't need to be you know, explored. I think this worked. It was an hour and a half, easy in, easy out. Point got across a powerful point. And the acting's superb. I think, I think it hit every beat it needed to. And honestly, I think if you were to expand the story, you need to show more basketball. And I think the basketball would act like showing actual basketball would lose, would lose the luster of what we're going for. I know that sounds crazy in a basketball themed movie, but basketball is not the point of the movie. Yeah. I would, I would sort of agree. It's sort of like how, like, I, some of the, some of the more Marvel movies sort of like take like themes and drop the superhero thing into the, into the theme, like Captain America, civil, like winter soldiers or a political thriller in, in aspects. But if you tuck the superhero stuff out, it would take away. It takes it enhances the uh, political thriller aspect. Like if you took the basketball in here and put more of it in, you would detract from the main point they're trying to get across. Yeah, yeah, and they threw in the the talking heads, which I know you wanted to discuss. From I believe who are the three players? Reggie, Reggie, yeah, Reggie Jackson, Jackson, Donovan Mitchell, mm-hmm. Carl Anthony Towns. The three guys. Right now, my take on those is a little bit probably unpopular i thought they were nice fan service like i think i i I hope that they weren't added just to like add something to the audience experience because netflix is somebody wasn't confident in necessarily the film on its own because i don't think they necessarily add anything to the story other than here are three players like eric scott who had to come into the league so I think they're they're nice. They're a nice touch. But I do think if it were a bigger movie, they would be nice for like DVD extras or something like that as opposed to being part of the film. Because where where I would argue myself is that, you know, there's a touch of these players 
are more than just players. They're in the public spotlight. And all the things that rookies and young players have to deal with are very real. But I do think the movie itself showcases and spotlights everything we need to know as audience members and as a society in general. That to have them there is nice. It's nice, but I don't know if it's necessarily needed. How do you feel? I liked having them there. And I do think they sort of added a bit of, like, gravitas to the movie because it sort of like, gives you a little pause where they give you little nuggets of wisdom about their experiences in the league, sort of adding a little bit of, like, I want to say context to what Eric Scott's going through throughout the movie as he tries to make get ready to really start his career and he's trying to think of things and they're talking about experiences they had. I think they do add to that. They're all talking about their rookie years, basically. Yeah, I, and, and I don't disagree with you. I just don't think they, if they were gone from the movie, I don't think the movie's any any worse for the wear. That's a fair point. I could, because I could, it does, I think it's like nice supplementary material, but like if you remove the three of them and just ran the movie as is and just say it's like five minutes less, I don't think it's geared to miss much. Yeah. And I, and, and maybe it's a personal thing, but I, I kind of tend to get taken out of the moment from stuff like that. So, like, I'm, I'm sitting there watching what is fiction, and all of a sudden you're throwing in a talking head documentary style. And I want to go back to the people and the characters. I, like, it, it kind of makes me, like, almost like if it was established that Donovan Mitchell, Reggie Jackson, Carl Anthony Towns existed in the world of a high-flying bird, I think it would be a little bit more serviceable. But here we, like, I don't know. I just, it was hard for me to latch on to them. And that, that, that just may be something I'm missing, something I'm not seeing. But I get why they're there. It adds a certain, like you said, gravitas. It adds a certain expert level opinion on the matter. I would have also liked to see an agent maybe get a talking head, a popular agent chime in as well if we're going to go down that route. Because I feel like Rick, uh, Eric Scott's important, but the agent character is the one, he's the glue that ties us together. So if we're going to get a player's point of view, I'd like to see an agent's view on how a young player coming into the league, how they handle that, how they work with the player, what they look for, et cetera. Yeah, that makes some sense. Go back to the agent. Let's go back to Ray Burke. Let's we'll talk about the execution of the plan. How do you, did you like how they play that out? They do throw you a bit of a curveball at the end when you don't know where he's going. Then you see where it leads to. You're like, oh, this is actually pretty genius. Yeah, it was great. And like I said before, it's the Soderbergh main character, you know, needs to get a problem solved. It's very smart about it every domino needs to fall into place perfectly and it does what i liked is that what i maybe you can answer one question i have is so in the real life nba lebron and steph wouldn't be able to have a one-on-one matchup so to speak because it has nothing to do with the nba per their contract so how would it be different for umber and eric scott to be able to do such a thing and not just be like sued right away well, I think because technically they're both rookies, they have not signed their contracts yet, so technically they're not employed by the NBA. Oh, they were just like draft rights. Yeah, they were they were draft rights because throughout the movie, Ray Burke's like, "Hey, you're gonna get your contract, you're gonna sign once the lockout's over, then you're gonna start your career." Okay, so these guys were drafted first and second round, hypothetically, by the Knicks or yeah. the New York team. Okay, so that makes a lot more sense. So you've got his plan is that well, if the league's not going to restart. My bank account's hurting. My lifestyle's hurting. I've got to fix this, and I've got to show the world, you know, 
why my players, why I'm the best at what I do. I don't know if there's as much of a personal chip on his shoulder as I'm making it seem, but there definitely is one that comes to play. He knows it's like a game of chess. He knows all the players, he knows all their moves, and he works around it. And so the the execution of the plan is that he's going to create buzz around something that is not an NBA game to be able to get his players paid and to be able to get the owners to see that there will be an alternative if they don't wise up and it works out. Now, I can't articulate it so well, how you know all the ins and outs of what he does, but essentially he creates his, he gets this player, he gets the other New York, I guess, drafty Umber, Jamero Umber, and he gets them to kind of get into like a street hoop battle at a local charity event, thus creating the image, creating the spotlight for them, for the public eye. It's on Skip and Shannon, like everyone's paying attention and he stops the game. It's not shown, but he stops the game before there could be a winner with the idea that like a, a boxing prize fight, we can market this, sell tickets and get people to come out and see the one-on-one matchup of these two great athletes. And that lights a fire under the NBA owners to get a deal done because they would lose their power if there's an alternative to the NBA that makes money. Yeah, and this is something that Eric Scott does not see because at the end of the movie, he fires Ray because he, he thinks that Ray conned him out of money. And then Ray basically points out and says, hey, this is not about, this is bigger than just you making money. This is, this is a whole bigger problem that you have to consider. And he leaves him the book on the play of the black athlete. I think it was a very interesting way to end the movie. Absolutely. And that's why I think socially this movie is so important and hits the nail on the head. The, the point of the movie isn't, will Eric Scott be able to be in the NBA and get money? It's, will Eric Scott be able to take control of his life from the white owners that own, essentially, not, not own, but own the rights to their careers? These young black athletes, and it's just like Ray Burke is like, open your eyes. And, and the coach, Spence, who's a great character, and I love Bill Duke as an actor, their whole dynamic of the game over the game and the exploration of that concept and how it's solved in this movie, I think is just brilliant. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's, let's, let's grade this movie. What would you grade High Flying Bird? I, I would grade it, I would give it an A because I think with what it's working with, it executes it flawlessly. The low-key status, the, the low, not necessarily low-budget, but it's not a grand movie. It's a very, like, it's grounded. a very, yeah, it's grounded. It's very real. All the performances feel authentic. I never feel like I'm watching a movie. I feel like I'm watching something play out in front of me in real life. And I just adored it. I, I thought it was a very quick hour and a half. And I think it didn't have to say it's welcome. It got its point across. You know what I mean? I thought it was very efficient in its time. And I just thought it was wonderfully, wonderfully constructed. And I, I think it worked great as a Netflix movie. I think if it were in theaters, it may be seen as underwhelming if it was given a big budget, a big production. But I think with the iPhone, the low-key aspect, everything was executed perfectly. I give it an A. I am right there with you. I give it an A. I think 
people just set your expectations. This is not a, a pure basketball movie. This is sort of about the reality of the basketball world and like the world that some of these athletes are living in. I think that's an interesting case study. I thought the style of the movie, as you said, I think grounding it in reality here, not using all the fancy cameras and spending like 20 minutes on epic basketball scenes. I think thought really enhanced the message of the movie. I would give it an A. I'd give it a must recommend. Actually, I think you should go get around to watching this before the NBA comes back in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Like, I wonder how many players are just afraid to upset the system in any sport. I, I know right now baseball's dealing with it, and you have every sport has dealt with at least some kind of lockout since I've been following sports in my 30 plus years. Every sport has dealt with a lockout. And, it's just interesting to me how players really do all players fully understand what is going on when their sport is locked out. And the vibe I got from the movie is that Eric Scott did not. And he was just kind of hoping and waiting and wishing. And then you have Ray Burke who's like, we got to fix this thing and I'm going to do it myself. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's a good message is getting out here. Let's hang out a little more hard right here. Who is the MVP of the movie? Ray Burke, without a without a shadow of a doubt, he in seventy two hours, and this is we have spoiled the movie at this point. Yeah, uh, if if you okay. if you were getting into this without watching High Flying Bird, like I'm sorry, it's still it's still a good experience to go through this. I mean, we didn't give you everything, but like the basic gist is there. It's still worth a watch. Yeah, and at no point when watching the movie did I not think everything would work out the way Ray had anticipated, but. Uh, Ray is the MVP, He's the mastermind, everything works out, and, and he plays people like chess pieces the way he needs to. He never insults anybody's intelligence. He never does anything, you know, under the table or dirty. It's all pretty clean, and, you know, obviously he does things without people realizing it, but nobody's life is going to be ultimately ruined by anything he does, and he still achieves his mission and everyone benefits because the owners get their game back, even though they're being stubborn. The players get their league back. The fans get the league back. Ray gets his job promoted, essentially. And he, in a couple days' time, he solves a lockout problem and gets a promotion himself. So I would say he is the MVP, hands down. Yeah, I think he's the clear-cut winner. Just for the sake of variety, I will also throw in Coach Spence, who I think plays a very good supporting role in the movie and, like, his like his some of his bits are just hysterical throughout the movie. Yeah, he's definitely a nice touch to the movie. And Bill Duke's been around for a long time. I first fell in love with Bill Duke from the original Predator. He he's in the original Predator, so since then I've always kind of had an eye on him. So it was really nice to see him here, getting the job done and having those nice moments. Yeah, let's go the other way. Who is the least valuable player in this movie? Well, it depends how you look at it, right? If you're one of those people who's going to side with owners, you're going to think that there there kind of is no least valuable player, I guess. You're going to say everyone's doing what they feel is right. But as an, as me, as an audience member, I've got to look at the script. I've got to look at the story. And to me, the least valuable player, it's tough, man. I guess the agency who Ray works for, so the Zachary Quinto character, would be the least valuable player because here he is just kind of saying, well, the uh, the basketball department's going to shut down. It is what it is until further notice and never takes a step forward 
to help solve anything. And then Ray has to go and do it on his own with the back against the wall. So I know it's probably kind of an off-the-wall pick, but I'm going to go with the Zachary Quinto character. Yeah, he doesn't add much. Tom McLaughlin's character, the owner, owner's rep, I do think very slimy character also. I would give him LVP points. That's fine, but I do think he fought for what he was believing in, and I think probably if you're going to make him the LVP, you've got to make all the owners the LVP because he represents the group. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I'm, yeah. I'm in a very giving owners LVP points mood after what we just witnessed in the, in the baseball negotiations. Oh, 100%, 100%. And they are the LVPs in the baseball current real day lockout. I just think in this movie, we don't get all the facts of what they're fighting for. We just kind of get the feel that they want to, they want a bigger piece of the pie for themselves. I guess that is that the general just you got in terms of the lockout itself in this movie. Yeah. That's the sense I got. So they wanted to redistribute the revenue share. That's basically the sense I got what the owners wanted. Yeah. Yep, so I, that's my LVP, but I certainly agree with you that the owners in every major sport are just horribly, horribly selfish. Indeed. That's, that's, that's a good good take on High Flying Bird. Definitely gave it the recommendation. Go check it out. Before we go, like we do every time you've seen, when you've been on here the last couple of times, give me a couple of streaming picks that you're into right now. All right. Um, being that quarantine, I've kind of shifted away from drama lately and that's only because the world is in such disarray that watching more serious stuff just doesn't pull me out of the, the, the moment so I'm going to keep it light for this week I'm going to give you uh, a comedy and then two reality shows my first is my favorite competition game show on TV I've been binging old seasons CBS All Access Big Brother I'm a huge Big Brother fan I think it's a great competitive show uh, without you know going into too much detail for the sake of time it's a bunch of people locked inside a house every week there's a head of household who gets to essentially call the shots and gameplay ensues from there both socially and through gameplay competitively it's my favorite reality competition show yeah I, I think also I will point out I've seen this show a lot and it, it this, the actual game itself does not jive what CBS wants to market you. They like to market it as more of like, oh, look at these wacky people living in the house wearing costumes and like basically like getting slimed and doing all this stuff. But there is like a bit of a mental game to the whole show. It's actually very interesting. The mental game is more important. Like for true fans of the show, the social game, the mental side of it is what like separates the good players from the bad players. And you could be really good at competition physically, but if you don't have that mental game behind you, you're going to falter. And I do think if you're going to stream Big Brother, it might service you better to, to watch some of the older seasons, which feel like ages ago, but we're only on season. If it happens this summer, it'll be 22. So the last 20 years, they have a tendency in the last couple of years to try and recruit model types or people who have never seen the show to be contestants when I think back in the day you had more fans of the show and people who were there who were in it to win it, not just gain notoriety from the appearance and Instagram followers afterwards. Yeah, I think it's so it's, it's definitely yeah. tough. it's definitely tough because like some of the more recent seasons, I mean like it's hard to find a good one from start to finish. I think I came on in like fifteen. I'd say like okay. the the closest I think of being exciting all the way through was 20, but then 20 kind of fizzled at the end when the other, when the other alliance really had no idea how to actually do anything. The Fauté alliance in 20 
was so endearing and lovable, but could not get out of their own way. I, I would say 20 was a fantastic season. And if there are people out there looking for seasons to, to watch, I personally recommend 10, 14, 20. And then if you want to see a season that just had a bunch of likable people, it's not necessarily the best season of Big Brother, but I thoroughly enjoyed 16. Yeah. Yeah, that makes That's good. So we're, I would say those are interesting, especially if there are rumors are true that there might be All-Stars coming back this summer. That would be interesting to watch. A hundred percent. And the All-Stars names that they're throwing out there are solid. Yes. So I, I would, I am very much looking forward to it, and I do believe it'll happen. All right. What are your other two picks that you're going with? Other two picks, uh, and the other reality one is a show that is so hard for me to watch, but it's kind of like I can't look away from the horror, and it's called Dating Around on Netflix. So the premise is uh, one character gets five blind dates, and they have to pick one of the dates to go on a second date with at the end. But the, the, the fun thing is, is that it's not just, you know, hot 20-something-year-olds looking for other hot 20-something-year-olds. You get real genuine people, and it makes for some of the most awkward yet thrilling television I've ever seen. Like, I was watching last night with my fiancé, and I had a blanket over my head for 90% of it because I just could not watch what was happening. But it was highly entertaining, and it's definitely a very real, authentic show, and the showrunners and the producers just let the cameras roll, and whatever happens, happens. And the dates are sometimes awkward, they're sometimes great, but it's just fun. It's a, it's a, it's a mindless, easy watch, and that's why I'm recommending it right now. That sounds like a fun one to check out if you're into that kind of stuff. I might tell that to John Stanko, who is a big Bachelor guy, so maybe that would be up his alley. But what's your last pick? Okay. My last pick is one that is a comedy, but it is super timely right now, and that's Parks and Rec. It's not on anymore. It's, it's over with. But I feel like its relevancy is very high right now. We have political stuff going on that was kind of referenced in the show far back as 2012 in terms of the types of people who are at play and just the idea of townspeople getting their, their showcase in real life now and how they're used in parks and rec and how people have to navigate around the society they live in. It's just so relevant to today. And I love the show. A lot of great characters. Parks and rec is my final recommendation and it's on Netflix. Yeah, Parks and Rec, I've seen a lot of love for of late. They do does seem like that's a good one to go to. I'm going to throw one pick out this week. It's one I've been going to because I've been watching the last couple of years. I've been catching up on the most recent season right now. Have you ever heard of the Amazon Prime show All or Nothing? No, I haven't. It's basically, if you follow the Hard Knocks style, it's basically like Hard Knocks over the course of a regular season for an NFL team where they basically follow the team throughout the year, give you behind the scenes, the players' lives, all that good stuff. I'm watching season five right now, which is the Eagles last year, which I think was definitely a fun year to check out. They've had the Cowboys on in the past. They have the Cardinals, the Panthers. It's a lot of good seasons in there. I do. I would recommend going to check it out if you're getting ready for football and hoping you're going to see football in the fall. I actually have heard of it. I just didn't know the name of it. I heard of the show itself, and I knew the Eagles were the last team on it. I just forgot the name of the show being all or nothing. Yeah, they've had some good stuff on the show. I remember the Rams were on, I think, the second year. They actually led the year off. That was the year Jeff Fisher got fired in season. They sort of had the fall of that on the show, which is actually pretty interesting. Oh, interesting. Very cool. 
Yeah, so that's my pick for this week, all or nothing, because I'm still working through some of the stuff we've, we mentioned last time. Like I'm watching Homecoming still. I'm getting through that. I'm getting through a couple other things. I'm catching up. On I got to be honest with you. I, I tried to start Homecoming Season 2, but I just can't get into it right now. I'm going to have to revisit it in a little bit. It's just so heavy, so so deep that I just could not focus on it right now. Yeah, like, I'm trying to, like, keep... Tr- I'm two episodes in, I'm trying to keep track of it, man. Like, it's a little harder because, like, you get a brand new character at the start and, like, you're trying to figure out how they fit in. There's only... We've only seen one character we saw in season one so far. So you're, like, trying to place it in this story. It's not making a ton of sense yet. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, there you have it. Alan Austin, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people find on social media keep up with some of the stuff you're up to? Twitter, at Alan, A-L-L-E-N, underscore Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N underscore and then on instagram it's alan austin sports all right my friend thanks thanks again i appreciate it thank you mike always a pleasure all right and there you have it that was the latest episode of the just end the suffering podcast i want to thank my guests today again i want to thank alex schiffer from the athletic for coming on to talk about the brooklyn nets as they head into the restart in orlando i also want to thank Martino Puccio, Kevin Walsh Jr. from SportsGrid, as he did some fun conversation about the restart of the NBA season, some betting stuff, all the great things you can see. I also want to thank Alan Austin for taking the time to dive into High Flying Bird with me. That's been some fun. I can't wait to see how that ran to people. It was definitely a good movie. I highly recommend it. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including my look at some of the wild litany of changes that Major League Baseball is going to have this season. And I broke down a lot of this stuff from the roster sizes, COVID testing, the schedule, all that fun stuff. Head over to the website and the blog, justendthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Simply search for Just and the Suffering there on any of those platforms. You can find all episodes there. You also find my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. All the individual segments on the episode go up there. So if you want to hear my conversation, Alex Shepard by itself, you can go ahead and check out the YouTube page for that. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings as well. Or like this podcast even better going forward. Those are really important guys. They mean a lot. Help get the podcast into the ears of more people. So please take the time, leave that that review five stars. If you like it, if not, whatever you feel is appropriate, give me some feedback. I'll make it better for everybody going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet me with the hashtag Gravitas at the end of this week's podcast. Again, hashtag Gravitas. Go back to our talking point with Alan Austin as he talked about the merits of the NBA players in the film High Flying Bird. Next week on the podcast... Doing a little Yankee talk next week. We're going to have Yankee fan forum, Yankee guests. We're going to have some Field of Dreams. Until then, stay safe, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.